Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Uh, we are <clears throat> looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. And so if you have a copy of God's Word in hand, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10. We, uh, we had to take a little break there while I was out, and then last week we did a, a message, uh, kind of a one-off message from Ecclesiastes. But we're back in the text. We've been working through this book slowly, but uh, methodically over the last year, and we are um, about two-thirds of the way through. For the last several weeks prior to this, we've been looking at chapters 8 and 9, uh, and 8, 9, and 10 form a, a complete unit really covering the same theme. And the issue that Paul's addressing is our Christian freedom and our responsibility that we have one to another uh, in the church. And the topic uh, comes to the foreground as um, Paul is writing to this church because a disagreement arose between different groups within the body on this whole matter of eating meat that is sacrificed to an idol. And uh, there were believers in the church, in the church at Corinth, who looked at um, this whole issue of dining in an idol's temple through very distinct and different lenses. Um, the one group believed that they had the knowledge, the scripture gave them the understanding and the knowledge that they could do whatever they wanted to do. They could, they could eat in an idol's temple, which was very common culturally at that time, and that was perfectly justified because they were, they were not really gods. They were false gods. And so they think, well, what's the big deal? And then there was another group, a second group, that um, felt as if dining in an idol's temple or even purchasing meat that had been processed through an idol's temple and was being sold in the marketplace place. They looked at that as a violation of their conscience, and so they were very much, uh, very much uh, was uh, off the table for them. And so by the time Paul writes to them, this disagreement has become uh, something of a, of a serious conflict within the church, uh, has the potential to break into open conflict and, and disunity in the body of Christ. And so Paul addresses it. He addresses the issue beginning in chapter 8, primarily by making an ethical argument. And he says, listen, you and I have a moral imperative, a responsibility to sacrifice whatever would wound another brother or sister's conscience. And, uh, and so he makes that case pretty compellingly in chapter 8. Love demands that we build up the body, not tear it down. And our utmost priority is the edification of the church, which is why he ends the way he does in chapter 8, verse 13. He says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The issue for Paul wasn't whether he got to eat meat or not. The issue for Paul was, you know, am I walking in love that is building up my brother and sister in the church? And that, at a minimum, meant not doing anything that would offend them, their conscience. And practically speaking, we said that means that we will often be called upon to set aside some privilege uh, that we may have, some right, some preference that we would you know, want for ourselves so that others in the body of Christ are built up and not wounded. So we have to set those things, we are willingly and joyfully set those things aside. Chapter 9, we said... Was, um, was really the same argument, but Paul is advancing the argument by force of his personal example, how he li lived his life. Uh, chapter 9 is a description, we said, of mature Christian discipleship. And, uh, and, and it's not just mature Christian discipleship because Paul's an apostle with a capital A. It's because he's a godly person, a godly Christian, and he is a leader in the church. 
And Paul sketches out this, this paradigm, this model for the proper use of our freedom. And he does that, we said, by bouncing around between various themes kind of all throughout chapter 9. His rights, his restraint of those rights, the Christian race that he's running, and the reward that he is looking ahead to. And so when we take a step back and we look at all of chapter 9, which we did for, I think it was five messages, uh, what we see is chapter 9 becomes a template that we can trace our lives upon for the glory of God. Though Paul had every right and every point of privilege to be supported in gospel ministry and to make a living through his uh, preaching and teaching, he forfeited that right, even though it was given to him by God, for the greater progress of the gospel. That was what was most important to him and the building up of the church. Rights, his, uh, claiming his rights was not what mattered to Paul. What mattered to Paul was reaching unbelievers for Christ. That is what was his kind of consuming passion. And you see it in chapter 9, uh, verse 19. He says, for though I am free of all men, right? I am free in Christ. I have made myself of his own volition a slave to all so that I may win the more. Verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So he, he, he shows that the, the, his life was oriented around gospel proclamation and the building up of the church. And he goes on then at the end of chapter 9 to compare his Christian life to that of a, of a foot race. He says uh, he's like an athlete who's exercising self-control in every dimension of his being and running this Christian race with spirit-fueled discipline to win that future prize. Of course, that's kind of our anchor text for our philosophy of ministry. Even though he, he knew God's grace was sufficient, he knew God would call him and that would never let him go, that he knew salvation was God's work in his heart, Um, and that, as the hymn writer says, no power of hell or scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. Like, he understood that. Nevertheless, he ran, he said, he runs with maximum effort, keeping his eyes on the reward, which we learned in the last message that we had from 1 Corinthians, is ultimately our glorious fellowship with the triune God in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul's concern as it should be our concern as well, is that after preaching to others, that he might end up disqualified, that he would come to the end of his Christian life and he'd find out that his faith was a dead faith, or worse, had become no faith at all. He was fearful of that. Even I think it's interesting that even the mighty Paul recognized that he had not laid hold of it yet. He says that in chapter 3 of Philippians 3. He says, the one, I have not laid hold of it yet, but the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And then he says in verse 15 of Philippians 3 that all who are mature are to have this attitude, this attitude of forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies ahead. The maturity is not resting on something that happened in the past. Maturity is recognizing that there is yet to be received reward that he must press on toward. He is working out his salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that God is at work at him both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He understands both of those realities. But that was not the attitude of the Corinthians. 
And time and again throughout this letter, he has pointed out that they are not mature. In chapter 3, he calls them babies, he calls them infants, that they cannot even handle the meat of the scriptures because they're still, still having to drink the milk. They're still trying to nurse them on the milk. They're, they're spiritually immature. And their attitude was one of arrogance, one of prideful presumption upon God's grace. There was this attitude that said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if we dine in an idol's temple. It doesn't really matter if we are participating in these, these kind of pagan feasts that are offered to these false gods because, well, they're not really gods after all anyway, and uh, we belong to Christ, so, you know, we're good. Self-discipline, setting oneself apart from sin, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh— that was not something they were interested in. They actually took a back seat to an almost magical view of the ordinances that they were partaking of. They looked at their spiritual privileges, union with Christ, purchased uh, pictured, excuse me, in believers' baptism, fellowship with Christ, pictured in the Lord's table. They looked at those things as giving them sort of carte blanche to live however they wanted, to do whatever they pleased, and they had a distorted view of their freedom. In Christ. And Paul is going to, once again in chapter 10, uh, call them out for it, but not as ethically questionable like he does in chapter 8, and not as contrary to his example like he does in chapter 9. In chapter 10, Paul is going to expose their view of Christian freedom is wrong, and he's going to do that along the lines of the fact that they are, their view of Christian freedom is theologically deficient. In other words, it does not uh, it does not measure up to what the Word of God says. And the net effect of chapter 10 in this theological argument that he's going to get into, especially in verses 14 to 33, the net effect is to prohibit this idolatry that was going on. It is essentially to say you can't do this because you are participating in basically the table of demons while you yourself are supposedly uh, dining at the table of Christ through the Lord's table. So um, it, it's idolatry, and he says idolatry is nothing to be trifled with. So what is idolatry? It's a good thing for us to stop and think about for just a moment. Um, what, what is idolatry? Because it's something that comes up you know, all throughout, but it's especially highlighted here in chapter 10. Well, when you and I worship anyone or anything uh, besides God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures, we're guilty of the sin of idolatry. Um, you can do this explicitly in um, uh, dancing around the threshold or um, dipping your toes in false religion. So there's a way in which you can, you can be idolatrous in a very straightforward way. But you can do this also implicitly by allowing anyone or anything to, um, besides God himself, to lay claim to your primary loyalty and allegiance. Now, idols don't have to be physical objects of wood or stone or metal, right, that you, you uh, bow down to or anything like that. Any false notion about God that contradicts his revealed word embraced and followed can function as an idol in our lives. Now, lots of people who would never, ever give a passing look to an icon of the Virgin Mary or, um, or would never light incense to a, a t uh, uh, an idol 
a Buddha carved out of stone, will gladly sacrifice anything and everything to acquire wealth, to uh, advance their careers, to pursue positions of power and influence, or to gratify their selfish desires. Um, idolatry, like all sin, is rooted in our hearts. It's a, it's a heart issue. It, it's an expression of, a, of an internal reality. Ezekiel says this in chapter 14, verse 3. He says uh, and of Israel's leaders, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So idolatry is a serious sin and a continual temptation for every one of us, regardless of the culture or the background in which we're familiar, which is why the first commandment that God gave Israel in the, first, in the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? That you'll have no other gods before me. That is the lesson that Israel failed to learn over and over and over again. As you read the, um, uh, the law and the prophets and the writings. So uh, John, in Apostle John in John chapter 5 verse 20 ends his short letter by saying, little children, guard yourself from idols. And again, in chapter 10 verse 14, as we'll see, at the end of our message, Paul says, flee from idolatry. So this morning, we want to just look at verses 1 to 13. But in these verses, Paul's going to point us to the events of Israel's past, particularly the Exodus event, to warn us against presuming on our spiritual privileges. Paul, as he writes this, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to point us to the Old Testament scriptures and to show us how to run that race that he's already talked about in chapter 9, our race of the Christian life to win. And so I just want to read the text so we can familiarize ourselves with it. In chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now we can break down this text into two simple lessons. And the simple lessons come to us in verses 1 to 5 and verses 6 to 13. The first lesson is from Israel's past. And we see that in verses 1 to 5. And the lesson is this, though you are privileged, you may perish. That's the lesson of verses 1 to 5. Though you are privileged, 
you may perish. We get that from Israel's past. The second lesson comes out of verses 6 to 13, and it is for the church in the present, and that is because you are privileged, you must press on. Because you are privileged, you must press on. So we're just going to break this down into two simple parts. And the first lesson from Israel's past is this, though you're privileged, you may perish. The opening five verses of chapter 10 are a history lesson, a a rewinding of the tape, if you will, of Israel's exodus out of Egypt and their wilderness wandering. And it's a history lesson that's meant to communicate a singular truth, which we just said, that though God's people have tremendous spiritual privilege, that in and of itself does not guarantee final blessing. And the way he goes about rewinding Israel's history, it shows that there is a God-intended historical correspondence or parallel and subsequent escalation between the events of Israel's past and the church's present experience. In other words, Israel's experience of the Exodus event, that whole ordeal, is what we would call a type. A type. Now, God's word makes use of this word, these types, as um, James Hamilton likes to call them, promise-shaped patterns to help, God, help us know God better and to understand his ways more clearly through human history. A type always involves two things, a historical correspondence, a historical parallel, and an escalation in significance between those two things that elevates the importance of the pattern itself. It's kind of a, 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 a work in pattern recognition in Scripture. Um, so we see this in uh, we see we can see types and this historical correspondence and escalation with respect to people in the scriptures. So Adam is a type of Christ, Jesus Christ. The first Adam, the first man, is a type of the greater man, the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. Sometimes in scripture we see a God-intended correspondence and and kind of escalation with regard to significance with respect to an institution. So the sacrificial system under the law and marriage, uh, those things point to the greater heavenly realities of, um, you know, fellowship with God in the case of sacrificial system or Christ's relationship to his body, the church, in marriage. And sometimes, and this is the case in our text, in Scripture we see a historical correspondence and escalation, a type with respect to events. So... God's work at creation or the exodus become recurring patterns for history's march toward the new creation and the kind of thing that God does when he saves people. So what is a type? Okay, What is this? And and I'll explain why this is important for us to understand in just a moment. Well, in a literal sense, the word type, or in in Greek it's tupos, has the idea of a mark made as a result of a striking blow. So in in the the most uh, literal, concrete definition is think of an impression made by a striking blow, like a um, a hammer and a nail or something, a stamping out of a particular shape. That's the literal translation. But in the figurative sense, it extends that concrete meaning to something that serves as a a model or template. 
Um, so it works something like this. A person sees something that impresses itself on their brain, and then other things are then interpreted along the contours or the lines of what that impression has left. Does that make sense? So uh, how does this work in Scripture? God makes promises through his word, and as the events of human history unfold, God's promises mold the expectations and the perceptions of his people, particularly the authors of Scripture, as they write, as they're carried along by the Spirit. And God's promises then shape the way the authors view, interpret, and wrote down what they recorded in the Scriptures. And so God's promises then shape the way the Scriptures are written. And as that's carried forward from event to event, from person to person, from book to book, from author to author, patterns begin to emerge. Patterns are perceived. Patterns that every step of the way have been shaped by God's promises, his, his revelation to man. And this is intentional. This isn't, a, this isn't an accident. This is not, not the kind of thing that the authors got done right in. They're like, whoa, look what I've made. Right? And, it's, and it's not meant, um, it, the authors meant to signal to us that these promise-shaped patterns are in, in force. So as divine revelation continues to unfold, as, you, you know, as we move through the scriptures, these, the promises and the patterns actually become self-reinforcing. Because with later biblical authors, they not only have the promises of God, they also now are seeing the patterns and so what the, as, the, as they gather that, those things become further reinforced and shape their own perception and shape what they record for us in the scriptures. So each new instance of the pattern, an event, and a person, and an institution, as that's forged, it creates a growing sense of significance, a growing sense of understanding. It builds realization that these persons, events, and institutions are moving somewhere, they're moving along the continuum of human history with respect to God's plan of salvation and how he is, relates to his people. It moves, as one early church father said, to something taller in height, stronger in power, and beautiful in form, and rich in its construction. So typology, or the study of types in Scripture, deals really in repetitions and pattern recognition. And it's not simply a literary device. It's not an allegory, like allegory is sort of one thing stands for something else. It's not simply an allegory or a literary device. It's not something that's dreamed up in their imagination. Okay? It's not um, like numerology where they're looking for you know, crazy patterns you know, that don't really exist. God ordained the parallels. God ordained that things would actually happen in time and space, and then he providentially ensured that the authors of Scripture would notice those things and that the Holy Spirit would oversee each of those writers to record those things for us exactly as God intended. So it's anchored to the text. It's not out of our imagination. Not everything is a type, but there are types in Scripture. You say, well, so what, Jeff? Why are you talking about this? It's not because I read a book on typology recently. <laughs> if you look at verse 6 and you look at verse 11, Paul uses that exact language. He says, 
These things happen as types, literally. He's using it in the, in the, in the way I just described. He says these things happen. In, in NAS it says examples, but it's the word tupas. These things happened as types for us. Verse 11, now these things happened to them typologically is literally the translation. It's an adverb. So Paul is drawing our mind and attention to the fact that Israel's the event of the Exodus is a type that is meant to help us understand God's ways and his will. So, so if we're going to truly feel the weight of Paul's warning and his encouragement, we need to understand the historical correspondence and the escalation and significance between Israel and the church. Paul, the weight of Paul's argument is the fact that these are types. So that's why we're talking about it. Without an understanding of that connection, that divinely ordained connection, the continuity that exists between Israel's experience of God then and the church's experience of God today, we could be tempted like the Corinthians to just ignore Paul's instruction. We could look at this and say, well, you know, that's Israel. That was 3,000 years ago. What does that to do with us? There's no bearing on me today. But that would be to miss the whole point of what Paul is saying. He's saying it does have a bearing on us. It does matter. Paul's pointing out the type helps us see the God-ordained link and connection between Israel's experience of God's saving work then and our experience of God's saving work today. He wants us to learn the lesson from Israel's past. And the lesson is this, though you are privileged, you may still perish. You may still privilege. Perish. Look at verse 1 again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The beginning of verse 1, 4, connects back to verse 9. It's a continuation of the same discussion. The danger of being disqualified, as he talks about at the end of verse 27 of chapter 9, of coming to the end of your life, and rather than hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, hearing, depart from me, I never knew you, that is a real danger. Paul is concerned for their souls. This danger is real for those who do not have self-control in all things in pursuit of the heavenly prize. And Israel, he said, is exhibit A, (laughs) Notice the repetition of the word all in these verses. All were under the cloud. All Israel experienced the protective presence of God and the guidance of God through the wilderness in the cloud and the fiery pillar. We see that in Exodus chapter 13. All, he said, passed through the sea, the Red Sea, where God split the waters and supernaturally guided them through on dry land and then destroyed Pharaoh's army. Like, They all experienced that. He says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. The experience of that, that passing through of the Red Sea, united Israel to Moses, bringing all Israel under his prophetic leadership as the leader of Israel, as God's representative. All ate the same spiritual food, referring to the manna from heaven. It's not that it was fake food, like spiritual food. It was real food. He's saying its heavenly origin is is that of manna 
that they ate and it sustained them in the wilderness. We see that in Exodus 16. All drank the same spiritual drink. Again, it's real water, but he's talking about God's supernatural provision of the water from the rock. See that in Exodus 17, and again, later on at the end of the wilderness wanderings in Numbers chapter 20. His point is that Israel experienced the redemption of slavery out of Israel, a kind of baptism through passing through the Red Sea, God's continuing presence and help in the wilderness. They had every possible spiritual blessing, every possible spiritual privilege lavished on them, showered over them. They lacked for nothing, but they flirted with idolatry, nearly, and nearly all of them perished in the wilderness. That's the lesson. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low. Even though God had given all of them every possible blessing and put forward every possible evidence of his infinite power and goodness and grace, yet God was not well pleased with them. And that is a serious understatement, what he says there in verse 5. Out of the millions of adults over the age of 20 that left Egypt, two entered the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses made it into Canaan. And Paul, uh, and he has this little phrase at the end of verse 5, he says, they were laid low in the wilderness. Again, that's a very polite translation. What that says literally is their corpses were scattered across the desert. This was not natural death, sort of attrition over time. He's calling attention to the fact that there were consequences. These were consequences of divine judgment that cut down rebellious, faithless Israel who did not trust Yahweh, who graciously and powerfully brought them out of the land of Egypt. The lesson from Israel's past is this. In the same way that God didn't tolerate Israel's idolatry, Paul says to the Corinthians, he will not tolerate your idolatry. And we are deceiving ourselves if he will tolerate our idolatry. Though they had every spiritual privilege, a kind of baptism, we don't want to press it too far, a a shadow of the Lord's table, I think, is what is alluded to in the food and the drink, the bread and and the water. The presence of Christ himself was with them, and yet they perished. They failed to enter the land of promise, and they died in their wilderness wanderings. If that is true for them, in a typological sense, it can be true for professing believers like you and like me. So the lesson from Israel's past is this, though you are privileged, you may perish. But there's a lesson for the church as well in the present, and that comes to us in verses 6 to 13. Though you are, or excuse me, because you are privileged, you must press on. Because you are privileged, you must press on. So verses 6 to 13 are in many ways an application of verses 1 to 5. So if you look at verse 6, Paul tells us this. Now these things, these things that he just mentioned, happened as examples for us, as types for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also did. These things were ordained by God, This is fascinating to think about. And so written and recorded by Moses as he wrote the first five books of the scriptures as a type, as a promise-shaped pattern for us as the church. 
And here's the reason, so that we would not crave evil things as they did. When you and I read the Old Testament narratives, you know, and you do your Bible reading and you get through some of these Old Testament scriptures or you hear sermons taught on these Old Testament texts and you see Israel's failures, you shouldn't pridefully think, man, how could they be so foolish? We ought to humbly think, man, how can I avoid making the same mistake? And verses 7 to 10 are really just an expansion of this simple warning not to desire evil things. There's a, there's a parallelism as you go through verses 7 to 10 to show that it's really kind of an explanation of verse 6, the end of verse 6. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to, to play. He's quoting Exodus 32, the whole incident with the golden calf where the, they're eating and drinking and it's just devolving into debauchery at this idol, basically idol festival while Moses is up on the mountain. And these situations, it just shows that these kind of situations, these idol worship, it often devolves into wickedness and debauchery. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. This is referring to the commingling and immorality of Israel with the women of Moab, recorded in Numbers 25, where God's judgment then broke forth on the people. And as you see, 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9, nor let us uh, try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. He says, don't put the Lord your God to the text. Test. Israel did this when they complained about the food. Oh, this miserable food. They said in Numbers 21. And God sent fiery serpents among them and they were judged. And then in verse 10, nor let us grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This, uh, pick, your, pick your spot in the Old Testament where Israel's grumbling. They're all over the place. Numbers 14, Numbers 16. Most likely he's alluding to Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. But Paul sums it all up in verse 11, reminding them again that the events of the Exodus and their wanderings in the wilderness that followed happened typologically recorded for our benefit. These things happened to them literally, typologically, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Christ coming, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, is the decisive kind of age has been completed. Uh, all previous ages have come to their appointed end in Christ. Those ages from the past are complete, and the lessons they teach us are now open to us. They're all there for us in the scriptures, for you and for me. We then ought to heed the wisdom of the lessons taught in those previous ages. And what is the key lesson? Verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. See, the Corinthians were very confident in their themselves. But then again, so were the Israelites. And in their self-confidence, Israel's self-confidence, they flirted with idolatry, they walked callously to God's will, they sowed to their flesh, and as a result, they reaped disaster. And so one of the most important lessons is this, let the self-confident take heed lest they fall. I mean, that's the lesson. The takeaway for all of us is obvious because Paul literally tells us what the takeaway is. 
in verse 12. Presuming on our spiritual privileges, baptism, the Lord's table, our heritage, whatever, and living for ourselves to, in our, to, to go our own way is dangerous, dangerous business. The warning for the church at present could not be clearer. And Paul's already said this. As you look back at chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's already said this. But, but, in a typical fashion, Paul cannot bring himself to end this whole section on a word of threat. And so he breaks off the argument at this point and he salts it with a word of encouragement in verse 13. Now, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, this verse is often quoted in isolation from the context, which is fine, because it kind of stands in this gap between the warning of verses 1 to 12 and verse, uh, the, the command, the negative command in verse 14, to flee from idolatry. But the word of encouragement is very much connected to the context, and the word is this, there is no risk of falling for you and for me as long as you're fighting the good fight of faith. The inevitable trials and temptations of the sin-cursed world are going to come, but as co- they're, they're such as is common to all men. They are inevitable, but God is unswervingly faithful to help his children. But we must, therefore, flee idolatry because there's no divine aid when one is putting God to the test the way the Corinthians were doing. This is high-handed rebellion, This is an indifference to God's commands and his word. Paul reassures the Corinthians that they need not fall, at least not in the ups and downs of the Christian life that we all experience. God, through Christ, has already committed himself to us from eternity past. And so the the argument is from the lesser to the greater. How much more can he be trusted to be there with us and for us when it comes to the trials and temptations of our passing lives. God is faithful. So verse 13 is a, is a strong reminder of God's prior faithfulness on our behalf. He can be counted on to help us. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And Paul says to the one who walks by faith in Christ's righteousness God will not allow him or her to be tempted beyond the limits of the Spirit's power which works mightily within us. And God is not a spectator in the world to us. He is deeply concerned and constantly active. He will make a way out of temptation. That's what this word, way of escape, means. It it pictures an army trapped in rugged terrain and managing an escape from an impossible situation through a narrow mountain pass. That's the picture. 
He says, if we're walking by faith, God will empower his children to press on in obedience. We will persevere. We will pass through and we can endure. That's why Proverbs 24 says, for the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Paul's point then is that in, in an ordinary human trials, right, the, the struggles of sin in a sin-cursed world, you and I can always expect divine assistance, divine aid. There is no danger of falling if we're walking with him. And so the lesson for the church today is because you and I are privileged, because we have the Spirit at work within us, because God can and has, and this is, I think, what's so important to understand about the type thing, because God can and has sovereignly weaved the events of human history into these specific promise-shaped patterns over thousands of years, he can be trusted to provide the way of escape, and we must press on toward the goal, as Paul says in Philippians 3, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Like, God's faithfulness and his ability to providentially twist and turn everything exactly the way he chooses is a strong encouragement to me, and it should be to you as well. As Paul said to Timothy, as he's ready to hand off the baton of ministry to him at the end of his life. He says, for this reason, I suffer these things, all these things he's experienced for the gospel, but I am not ashamed of it. He says, why? Because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. He understood God is faithful. God is trustworthy. And these things were written as types for us, for our instruction. So two very, very important lessons here. And Paul is setting them up to go on in verses 14 to the end of the chapter to show them you have to flee from idolatry. You cannot play with fire and not get burned. So though you are privileged, we need to remember, just because you make a profession of faith or just because you're in and around the church and you're baptized, just because you participate in the Lord's table and you doesn't mean anything if your life is not lived in constant communion with and fellowship with God, putting off sin, putting on righteousness. But because if you are in Christ and you have professed faith in him and you're trusting in his word and you're walking with him, not perfectly, we can't do it perfectly, but as we walk with him and, and look to him in our failures, we experience all the privileges of God and we press on. And that is a strong encouragement for us to flee from idolatry and to flee from all other wickedness or anything else that is contrary to the word of God. Paul wants us, to, them and us to see that when it comes to our rights and the things that we get to do, it's not licensed to walk on the edge it's not licensed to walk up to the line as far as you can go because we might just slip off. So we need to walk closely with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this warning and the encouragement. I think we need both. We need that reminder, Lord, that we cannot trifle with sin. We cannot hold fire in our bosom, as the Scripture says, and not smell of smoke and be burned. 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us to put aside all that dishonors you, cast aside all that dishonors Christ. We pray that we would look to you, Lord Jesus, because of your perfect life, your sinless um, and perfect atoning death in the place of sinners because of your resurrection power. It's, it's faith in that that has made us right before you and nothing else. And may that cause us to walk humbly with you. May we learn the lessons of the past. And may we look to the wonderful blessings and privileges that you've given us in the word. Those promise-shaped patterns and see that you are faithful. That you will provide that way of escape. You will keep us and strengthen us to live for you. Lord, may you strengthen us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.